Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Hull. I'm a program manager here at the Hirshhorn, and uh, thanks for coming. And I'm just going to turn the microphone immediately over to our assistant curator, Miku Yoshitaki, who put together this stunning um, show of uh, all works from the Hirshhorn's collection. So, Mika? Thanks, Kevin. Hey, thank you for coming in this rainy weather. Um, my name is Mika Yoshitaki. I'm the assistant curator here. And um, I have put together a show that is called Gravity's Edge. Um, it's kind of a, a breath of fresh air, I think, for some of you who have followed um, our more conceptual shows that are on view right now, like um, Damage Control. Um, it's, it's, it's something that I've been thinking about um, since I arrived here in 2011. Um, I'm actually a sculpture, my background is in sculpture, and so um, in Japanese um, post-war avant-garde, so it's, um, there is a little bit of a, um, a, a phenomenological element to this show that I should probably um, mention, um, but the two themes that I will be discussing throughout um, today is the notion of um, reconsidering gravity as part of the production process of the, the, the artworks that you see here, and also um, the increasing awareness of um, what we see as the, the edge. Um, and when I say edge, it's more um, also kind of an abstract edge, this uh, boundary between kind of figure and um, ground. And as well, um, the works here are not completely all paintings. Um, you'll see it and towards the end of the show, um, there are two sculptural works. So um, just to begin, the show is really a reconsideration of, of what we um, have come to associate as color field painting or um, what Clement Greenberg, the critic, uh, very important modern, modernist critic, uh, um, referred to as post-painterly abstraction. And that sh there was a show that uh, Greenberg had organized in 1964 um, of that name. And um, several of the artists in this show is actually included in that show, um, namely Morris Lewis, whose work you see here, um, kind of a pioneer of this new technique of, of soaking um, and pouring paint uh, directly on unprimed, unsized canvas. So this wasn't framed, it was basically he would manipulate the canvas and stretch it um, in his very small dining room in Washington, D.C. He's a local, he was, he's a local artist. And um, just start pouring paint and creating these kind of rivulets of, um, of dynamic colors. And this work here is very um, special to us at the Hirshhorn because um, his late, uh, or his widow, um, gifted it to us in um, last year, and it was actually in a very horrible condition. Um, and so our conservation department was able to, um, we have a, uh, someone on staff who is a Morris Lewis expert specialist, and so um, she, from her research, was um, able to do an amazing job of cleaning this piece, and it's actually kind of phenomenal because what she did was just spray the entire surface with water, and then just left the painting outside, just let it out in the sun. And it was um, because of that, the sun and the bleach um, that that um, created this very white um, 
surface. And so this is part of um, a work series called um, Unfurled. And you see at the very end here, um, of the gallery is also a, a piece called Delta Theta. And these were works that Morris Lewis was making in the, um, around 1960. And um, so as part of the post-painterly abstraction show, um, these, which was in 1964, these were represented um, as well as Kenneth Noland, who is an artist, um, he, he, along with uh, Morris Lewis, taught um, in Washington, D.C. And um, the two, uh, and another, the two other artists who were in the show is Helen Frankenthaler, who is um, to the left of uh, Kenneth Nolan with a piece called Indian Summer, as well as Sam Francis, um, an artist here who, um, is very much with the, um, represented with these bright blue, it's called blue balls. And you see there's very differences here. Um, two of the characteristics that uh, Greenberg had described for the show, one was a physical clarity of um, uh, openness and design, and the other was a, um, a, a linearity of form. So artists who, uh, continued this kind of tradition of modernist painting um, and, and basically a turn away from gesture and a, a kind of tactility of a very heroic kind of um, abstract expressionism and more into this kind of light um, uh, f flatness and also the staining quality and also these um, a strong contrast in pure hues. And so these were the kinds of um, trends that he began, Greenberg was beginning to see and as what he called post-painterly abstraction. Um, Historically, we've really seen a lot of works um, by Morris Lewis, Kenneth Noland, and Helen Frankenthaler as the kind of uh, key artists uh, um, representing um, color field or post-painterly abstraction. But for this show, I thought it would be in, in, interesting and also important to include um, other artists like uh, Sam Francis, as well as these two works by uh, Paul Jenkins. Um, I should mention that the, these, that Paul Jenkins was um, a very important artist in New York, but unfortunately was not um, represented as um, much during his time, I think in the 60s. He was much more well known in, um, in France and also in Japan. Um, I personally knew, when I was growing up, I actually knew Sam Francis and had um, heard about Paul Jenkins um, because they were both associated with the Art Informel movement um, in France, which it's, it was a parallel movement to abstract expressionism. And um, much more kind of lyrical um, and a notion of metaphysics that um, had kind of a transgre uh, transgressed beyond just this, this entrenchment in a very um, physical, literal um, painting style that was beginning to um, char characterize a lot of these color field painters. And so um, with Paul Jenkins, for example, he was um, he also poured his paints, but um, he was it, the the process was actually very very um, 
detailed and um, painstaking. He would test a lot of his colors. So the the way in which he would make these paintings is that he would first prime his canvas with a gesso, and then another layer with titanium white, or what he called um, at the time Liquitex. And then uh, he would use acrylics, but mixed with a very, it was a very viscous kind of um, translucent, almost um, like how light pierces through water, um, a kind of crystalline effect. And um, he would all, just like Morris Lewis, he would um, manipulate the the canvas so that he would put things underneath and um, he would actually have one corner locked on top of a, like a horse um, stable or a, a log and then just um, pour the paint down um, what he described sort of as like a, a uh, a branch that um, was kind of escalating down, cascading down. Um, and then he would have pools of this pigment um, in the center, and he would use a flat brush to kind of um, lighten the, the density. And um, in uh, 1964, his wife at the time, Alice Barber, gave him a present, which was an Egyptian um, uh, ivory knife and he started using this ivory knife to um, apply the colors as well and so in addition to the pouring um, what you see these very thin almost ethereal kind of colors is also applied with using this ivory knife um, and he was also very interested in um, Goethe's theory color theories and also Carl Jung's um, later writings on um, alchemy. And um, so this is called Phenomena Reversed Spell, and this is Phenomena a Tibetan Banner. So um, Jenkins was not only just interested in the effects of color and, um, and light, but also the more metaphysical effects. And Phenomena, as um, he quotes from, uh, Goethe, um, basically, when you were staring out into a, a, a pyre of a fire, and then, um, you know, for a long time, and then you look away into a dark, you know, um, coal bin, there is this flickering of light that you see. And that kind of after effect um, is what he also describes as this kind of prismatic effect. And that was very important. Um, to achieve as an as an experience when he's both making these works, but also for the viewer to when we're actually um, viewing these. So um, those are the kinds of differences that um, you'll see from, for example, Morris Lewis's veil paintings. And I wanted to. Um, pair these together. Um, the two were very much aware of each other. Of course, Morris Lewis is a much earlier um, generation, and um, Clement Greenberg actually had taken Paul Jenkins to Morris Lewis's studio in 1957, and um, was he was very um, intrigued by the veils, but also things that uh, Morris Lewis was making prior to the veils. Um, and just a note on the uh, technique here. So uh, Morris Lewis is, was using a pigment called Magna, which was an acrylic pigment that um, he would layer. And it, was, it would um, maintain the kind of vividness of the, of, of the colors. But still, we were able to see the uh, transparent layers um, over. 
And so it's, it has this kind of jewel-like effect. And this piece in, in particular um, is one of our treasures. Um, and so I thought it'd be interesting to pair. And I would like to say that um, this is the first time that Paul Jenkins has actually been shown. Um, and so it's a pleasure to be able to have this. Yes. I just wanted to ask a question because some of these uh, pieces I've seen before in the museum, but particularly the Morris Lewis, they've never looked better. And I have a feeling it has something to do with the light. Yeah. I'm sorry if this is a pedestrian question, but do you want to talk a little bit about the light in here? Sure. Um, well, uh, the lighting prior to this show was all incandescent light. And um, so it's much more yellow. But um, beginning this year, we are converting all of our museum lighting to LEDs. And so it's, it creates a much more white um, tone. And actually, when I was installing this show, there, the, the inst installation lights were incandescent. So um, and it's, that feels much more um, natural, but against the, this kind of LED lights. But then when you do away with all the incandescence, for some reason, the colors pop. Um, much more dramatically than um, what you would see from the incandescent. So I think that's what, Kevin, you were referring to here, um, especially since this show uh, has so many works that uh, contrast these um, strong, powerful hues. And I just wanted to mention before I open it up to um, dialogue that um, in addition to the gravity as being a part of the production process of these works, uh, I also was interested in um, pairing some of, making some unusual pairings like this, um, this is a Sam Francis edge painting and uh, uh, Linda Bengliss corner piece. And so um, the edge is not necessarily a reference to the frame. Um, I mean, there were a lot of artists who were beginning to um, focus their attention away from the center and towards the um, border of the uh, canvases. And so in, in some cases, this almost looks like you know, a horizon line or an um, abstract ex expressionist painting that has been completely zapped of its center. But um, in the context of minimalism, um, which is a movement that um, was basically happening parallel um, in the mid to late 60s, um, we begin to see a conscious awareness of the um, architectural space. And also, um, when, when viewers are actually walking through the works, that experience is called a phenomenological kind of um, experience of, of looking at the work is, is so important to our sense perception. So for example, a work like Anne Truitt, she was also associated with the Washington Color School um, based in, in the DC area, um, but um, different from her, her Washington um, color school painters, she would actually use uh, paint in three dimensions. But also, um, the colors that she used was very, very uh, widespread, but the difference was so subtle that when you kind of, you have to really walk um, around the work and also to see the kind of differences. And sometimes you would think, oh, the, the, the color that you're seeing is maybe effect of the lighting, or maybe it is inherent to the piece, but um, those are the kinds of things that I think make this work so 
unique and important is that kind of extra attention that she demands of um, our, the viewer. And also, there's always a little bit of uh, space that um, is laid an underneath each of the sculptures. And so there is this kind of effect of um, the sculptures being a bit off of the ground. Um, in an ideal, I think, circumstance, we would like to see this piece just directly on the ground. But um, but in any case, you know, um, it's, it, it is very um, interesting to see that um, awareness of this ground and also the figure of the sculpture itself. And in relation to this, I wanted to pair it with a shape painting by Kenneth Noland. Kenneth Noland, as you see um, in the other galleries, was, is also represented by the chevron. He was really um, interested in taking up this idea of shape and um, you know, furthering it to the point where um, the canvas, the kind of rectangular uh, literal support of um, the painting um, frame wasn't enough. It's, and so he began to um, create these kind of diamond-shaped um, canvases. Um, this one is called Rich Rhythm, and there is this kind of circulating effect where he um, changes his, he, he lays his stripes um, alternating. And so there is a, um, a sense of continuity of the work, um, not just kind of defined within its own um, space, but also to um, this, the surroundings as well, just like the Anne Truitt. And so, um, anyway, I can keep going, but this is basically, uh, um, description of some of the works that uh, I wanted to talk about. So if you have any questions, I can open it up. Yes. Well, I was noticing the shadows that are cast by that column yes. on, the, on that white ground. And then there's those shadows that are like little stripy shadows kind of echo. I mean, he probably didn't intend it to be that way. But no, I don't think out. so. Yeah, that's a good um, observation. I know that we were, uh, our, our exhibit crew and I were trying really hard to diminish the shadow, um, becoming like uh, part of the work too much, but um, I'm glad that you noticed a, you know, relationship between the two. Yes. You did, you, the Nolan canvas that's been restored and the Nolan canvas that hasn't Oh, the Morris Lewis? I mean, excuse me, Morris, excuse me. The, the difference in the color of the canvas is striking. Do yes. You think if this one were to be conserved, it would end up being a white canvas instead of a yellow background canvas? I mean, the, the yes, the, the yellowing is definitely um, the aging process. Yes. I think that if this one were to be restored, it would be very close to that white. Um, so the, the background would be. I'm not sure about the actual no, pigment, just, but... With the contrast between it, the white center and the colors. Oh, yes. Definitely. Wide. I think so, yeah. It was interesting because when we were um, pairing this piece with the Sam Francis, one of our um, exhibits, um, we have great staff, and one um, was like, oh, it's going to be too much of a um, contrast, the white, the real white, because this is primed, the Sam Francis is primed versus this unprimed um, Morris Lewis. But, you know, I don't think it's that jarring of uh, a relationship. And um, so, yeah, I think that it, I, I do kind of like this, the surface even though it is aged, I think that they're 
it could be conserved, but um, yeah, I think it would become be very different. What makes us decide whether or not? I mean, it really depends on our conservator. We have a great a painting um, conservator who, the one who worked on that other piece. I mean, there are problems like foxing and like molding, and if that's too visible, you know, we we really have to restore. Um, I mean, this is almost I think borderline, but. Um, and also, you know, we don't want to have works on view for too long um, because they need to rest. And so um, there's various factors, but I think that just the conservators will be able to determine. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. So the question was um, the corner piece and um, why I picked it in relation to the show. Yes, um, so Linda Benglis's corner piece, this is uh, poured pigmented latex. And um, I've always loved her um, work because it, it um, kind of, you know, goes between painting and sculpture, and it was deliberately in that um, vein. Um, this is actually a critique against abstract expressionism, and most since most of the works here are, um, you know, a turn away from that kind of gestural, gestural abstraction, I thought it would be interesting to have something that has some, some of that gestural abstraction in there, but the approach is, the attitude is not, you know, an embrace, but more of a kind of critique, because um, when Linda Benglis was working, I mean, this is from 1969. So um, this is, you know, it, it, she, she's, she's actually known as um, a feminist artist who is working very um, closely with a minimalist artist named Robert Morris. I mean, they were, I think, a couple at the time. And um, also had very strong opinions against the kind of macho, male, um, industrial, um, works like Donald Judd and um, uh, and you know the kind of very iconic minimalist um, works that were being outsourced, and so um, this is a counter to that kind of work, but also um, a counter to the kind of abstract expressionist um, paintings that we so associate with, um, you know, the fifties, like Pollock. And it is kind of humorous too. I mean, he, she was exploring um, day glow paint and fluorescence, and it's just so, um, you know, almost gaudy. And um, there's this pop element. I mean, pop art at this time was huge as well. Um, and so, I think that it's, you know, and, and the fact that she uses the architecture, the corner itself, to dictate the shape is something that um, I thought would be interesting in terms of this idea of the edge um, with Sam Francis and um, the rest of the hard edge works. Yes. Both in this exhibition and in your um, installation of sculptures in the second level ambulatory, uh, you've selected a lot of works from the collection that maybe hadn't been seen, that had been overlooked. Could you talk a little bit about your process of evaluating what hasn't been shown when it's right for something to make a comeback, that kind of thing? Well, um, I don't really evaluate works so much based on art historical um, 
name or, you know, I mean, there are a lot of works that I, th I know have been shown a lot, like the Delta Theta, and um, they're very iconic key works. And, um, and I know for, you know, there are many reasons why they, sh they are, but at the same time, I think that there are works in the collection in storage that um, are underlooked, and I, I don't really evaluate based on the artists themselves, but the form of the work, or also, or about the, the artists, if I knew about the artist's life, and maybe is, is an underrepresented part of the um, artist's life. Um, and quite often, I think um, museums tend to rank some of the, you know, works as a better or worse work um, in, within the artist's oeuvre. And um, I don't usually look at the work that way. Um, I look at the work based on its um, strengths in relation to other works, actually. Um, so maybe that's why I don't really think too much um, in advance about the art historical significance. You know, I look at it for its face value. So maybe that's why I tend to bring out some of the old works or under-recognized works. Okay, thanks.